Thank you very much, and hello, everybody here. Good afternoon now. Good afternoon to you who are watching at home. Um, so, a great passage, isn't it? We're becoming very familiar with it. Uh, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you will be familiar with it already. It's one of those go-to passages, the armour of God. And you read through, and there's all these really cool bits of armour, and then there are the shoes, which is why I've got to talk about today. I've got the shoes. Um, you know... I, just admit it, when you read through the list of the armour, you kind of gloss over the shoes, because it's like, well, you know, breastplate, I get that, helmet, yeah, sword, shield, they're all good bits of armour, but the shoes, what does it even mean that, you know, you have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? I don't really get that, so I think we have a tendency to kind of gloss over it, you know, what are the shoes doing there? Are they even that important? Well, turns out that yes, they are. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, and hopefully today we'll all have a better understanding, if I can do my job and <laughs> explain it, hopefully we'll have a better understanding of why they are so important. But what I want to do is, is just have a recap. We had a week's kind of break last week from the series, uh, just a bit of a recap of where we've been so far in this Battle Ready series. I have to say I'm finding this series so, so helpful for me personally, I don't know about you, but I'm finding it really helpful uh, just in how I'm thinking about things, uh, how I'm reading my Bible in the morning, all these kind of things. And I don't know if you've, you've noticed, but it's basically the same message every week. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, you know, there are obviously different emphases of the gospel, different parts of the gospel being talked about, but it's basically the same message. And I find that really helpful, that kind of repetition. I need that to get it into my, into my thick head. Um, what is the message? The basic message is this, that, that we're in a spiritual battle. So if you're a Christian, you are in a battle. Whether you like it or not, whether you even know it or not, you are in a battle. And why are you in a battle? Because you have an enemy, a very real, very strong enemy who wants to take you down. He wants to immobilize you. He wants to render you unproductive, unfruitful for Jesus. He wants to rob you of the joy of your salvation. He wants to rob you of all the benefits of the gospel that we should enjoy. And we've looked at some of his strategies and his tactics of lies and accusation and temptation. Right? So you're in a battle, if you're a Christian, you're in a battle because you have an enemy. But God has given us, through Christ, through the gospel, God has given us everything we need to stand firm in the battle, to stand firm and to fight. God has given us everything we need to live a godly life and enjoy life to the full as a Christian, enjoy all the benefits and privileges of the gospel, to be very productive and fruitful for Christ, enjoying life to the full, but we have to use what he has given us. So that's the basic message. You know, he's given us his armor, but we have to use it. We have to put the armor on actively. We need to put the armor on. And this is so important that we don't forget God's part of this and our part, God's role and our role in, in this battle. So, you know, God's role is obviously crucial because it's his victory. He's the, one, he's the one who's won the victory. It's his armor that he gives us. We can't manufacture this armor for ourselves. You know, we don't have enough righteousness to wear it as a breastplate. We, don't, we can't save ourselves as a help. You know, so, so it's his armor. He gives it to us. Um, it's, his, it's his victory. And if we forget that, if we forget kind of God's part in that, and we just focus on our own kind of strategies and tactics and that kind of thing, well, we become legalistic and we become kind of self-reliant. We do things in our own strength and we, we run aground. You know, we run aground. We, we, we hit the buffers because we can't do this in our own strength. That's why we're told in verse 10 to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 
in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's what we spoke about in the first week of the series. But there is still the command to us to be strong. And that's an active thing. We've got to actively be strong in the Lord. And we've got to put on the armour of God. And if we, if we forget that, that there is a responsibility on us to be battle ready, to use what God has given us, to put on his armour. If we forget that, then you know, if we forget our part of this equation, then we become passive. And we become easy prey for the enemy. We get passive. We get passive in the fight against sin and temptation. We get taken by surprise by the attacks of the enemy. You know, why is this happening to me? You know, it's a bit like getting into a ring with a boxer and being surprised that he hits you in the face. We shouldn't be surprised at it because you're in a ring with a, with, a, with a boxer. Who wants to knock you out? We have an enemy. We get taken by surprise, though, if we're passive and we're not alert and we're not watchful. We're not, we're not ready. So it's both. It's both God's part and our part. God has given us everything we need, and he is the only one who can. But we have the responsibility to use it and to be ready. And so we've looked at two of the pieces of armor so far. We looked at the belt of truth um, a few weeks ago. The belt of truth, the importance of knowing the truth uh, that God has revealed to us in here, in his word that we read from this morning. The importance of knowing the truth about who he is and who we are in him And reminding ourselves all the time, reminding ourselves constantly of what is true. Because that is the best way by far of being able to spot the lies and the deception of the enemy. If we know what is true. That's how they used to train, I don't know if they still do, but they used to train bank tellers and cashiers in that way to be able to spot forged banknotes. You know, really good, because you get some really good forgeries. But the way they spotted these banknotes was not by studying forgeries. They did it by studying the real thing. They got so well acquainted with the real thing. What This is what a real banknote is, and these are the qualities of a real banknote. They're so well acquainted with the real thing that, that when a counterfeit comes, even if it's the best counterfeit, they kind of know something's off with this. Something's not quite right. This is not true to what it should be. And so they can spot the, the best counterfeits. And as Stuart said a couple of weeks ago, the enemy will accuse you with things that are true, but he will never tell you the truth. Yeah? He will accuse you of things that are true, but he will never tell you the truth, the whole truth. It's like a counterfeit banknote. Well, it looks true, feels real, looks right, but it's not. It's designed to deceive. So we need to be so well acquainted with the truth that we can spot deception. And you can't passively know truth. It's an active thing. You, you've got you've to study it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to talk to other people about it. You've got to surround yourself with it. And that's a lifelong journey. To do that, we're on a lifelong learning journey of, of learning that truth. But that's what it is to buckle the belt of truth around your waist. It's an active thing. Then there's the breastplate of righteousness. I mean, the breastplate is just glorious, a glorious truth that if you are in Christ, you have his righteousness. I, I think we, but clearly the righteousness has disappeared from me. <laughs> the glory has gone. Um, we have his righteousness, not, not, not just as a, sort of a, a, a fake covering or, a, you know, we have his righteousness. It says in, in the Bible, it says that he, Jesus, became sin for you. I mean, that's a staggering thing in itself, but he became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God. Think about it. That is, he's not just giving you a coat to wear. You have become something different. You've become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived his righteous life for you so that he could give it to you, give you his life for his perfect righteousness to be credited to your account, to be reckoned to you, to be imputed to you while he 
having lived the perfect life, he then died the death that we all should have died for our unrighteousness as the penalty for all of our sin to absorb the unpayable debt to God that we all owed in its incompleteness, in entirety. So that you're, if, there, if you had such a thing as a righteousness account, it means that your righteousness account is in credit and not because of anything you've done. Because all you've ever done is withdraw from that account. And you were way over your head in debt, in overdraft, unpayable. You were way over your head. But Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has made an eternal deposit into that account, which means that that debt is completely wiped out. It's completely absorbed, and it's put you into credit for eternity. That's the gospel. That is good news, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. That is, that is really, really good news. And it's his work. It's not mine. It's his And so what does that mean? Well, it means that when the enemy comes and accuses you and whispers to you and says, oh, you're just a a miserable sinner, aren't you? You know, are you even a Christian? How could a Christian do that kind of thing? How could a Christian think that? You've messed it up again. What are you doing? You shouldn't be doing this. You, you, You just messed up again. When he comes with that accusation, we can say, I know, I know, you know, and in God's strength, I am trying to be better. But here is what I also know. This is what you can say to the enemy if you're wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Here's what I also know. The only one in the universe whose opinion actually matters, he looks at me and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. So so accuse away. Do your best or do your worst, but I will not be condemned because the one, the only one who actually has the right to condemn me, he's welcomed me as his son forever. And he has said that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. That's the truth that the enemy doesn't want you to remember. That is the truth. That is putting on the breastplate. That's putting on the armor of God. And so we come to the shoes, which, as I said before, can seem a little bit less exciting or less important among all this uh, really cool armor that that we're reading about until you realize that the command to stand is repeated four times. In one form or another, he says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. We just read it together. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. Stand your ground. After you've done everything, stand. Stand firm then. Four times, he says, stand. And clearly, your feet are really vital for being able to stand. Your feet are pretty important in that. If you get wounded in your feet in a battle, or if you slip over in a battle, you become easy prey for the enemy. So your footwear is really important. What you have on your feet is vitally important. So the, the shoes of a Roman soldier, because that's what the imagery is, it's all, it's all Roman soldier imagery because um, that Paul is using because that's what would have meant something to the people of his day because they were in the midst of the Roman Empire. They all knew what a Roman soldier looked like and what his equipment looked like. So the shoes of a Roman soldier is the imagery that Paul is using. And uh, they had three really important qualities that we can apply into what Paul is saying here. So first of all, they had hobnails in the soles to provide traction and grip. You know, a bit like studs on a football boot or spikes on an athletic shoe. It provided traction, grip, these these hobnails. That's obviously essential in a a shoe for a soldier because there's no good slipping around all over the place uh, and losing your balance all the time because that's going to be catastrophic for you in a battle. Second thing, the Roman soldier's shoes had very tough soles, and that was very important. Because what the enemy armies would often do, a tactic of the time, was to kind of hide these spikes in the ground. So a bit like an ancient 
minefields and didn't have explosives, but it was like, you know, they were, they were these little bits of wood that were sharpened to a point that they were put in the ground so they were almost hidden, you know, almost invisible, um, hidden among the leaves or, or whatever. Because if you could immobilize your enemy through spiking their feet, that's a pretty good way of stopping the army coming and attacking you, and you can then go and attack them. So it's obvious what the tactic was. So the Roman soldier's shoes had soles that were tough enough to not be penetrated by those spikes. They could cope with those spikes, and so they provided protection for the soldier's feet. And then the third thing is that the Roman shoes were light as well as tough. So the sh- it was really a cross between a boot and a sandal. So it was like leather strapping to keep them very light because that mobility was really, really important. You know, one of the reasons that the Roman armies, from the time of Alexander the Great, one of the reasons the Roman armies had such great success is because they were able to march further and faster than any other army. And part of that was down to their footwear, to their shoes. That was a huge factor. That mobility was a huge factor in their success. So traction, uh, protection, mobility, these shoes had those three qualities. And that meant that the Roman soldier was ready and prepared and equipped to be able to stand and fight without slipping and to protect their feet and to be able to move more quickly. They were ready for battle. And it's that readiness that Paul is emphasizing. Readiness. The, The shoes don't just represent the gospel of peace, it's the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's what they represent. So we'll have a look at that in a, in a few minutes. First of all, something else that is so important, it's vitally important as we're thinking about the shoes and our feet and um, standing firm in the battle, clearly a crucial factor is, well, where are you standing? What, what kind of ground are you standing on? Because you could have the best shoes in the world, but they're not going to do you a lot of good if you're standing on uneven and infirm ground. If you're standing in a pile of rubble, well, the rubble is going to shift under you and you'll fall and you'll slip. Or if you're standing on a, a, a really steep slope which leads down to a cliff edge, you could have the best shoes in the world, but they're not going to help you very much if you do slip or you do lose your balance. They're not going to help you if you're not standing on solid ground, if you're, if, if you're not standing on even solid ground. So you need to know where you're standing in this battle. Jesus is very, very clear what that looks like for a Christian. He's very clear. What does that solid ground look like? He says it in in the parable he tells about the foolish and the wise builders. I'm sure you know the story. They built, one built their house on the sand and one built their house on the rock. And the rains came down, the floods came up. You know the song. The house that was built on the sand, it collapsed in the storm. The house that was built on rock, it stood firm. And Jesus is very clear, what does that represent for a Christian? What is that solid rock on which we are to stand as a Christian? He's very clear, it's his word and doing what he says. You know, he's, not, he's unequivocal about that. That is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. That is building your house on, on the, the rock. This is the word of God. This, we have, this book that many of us will have on our shelves probably different versions of what we've got on our phones. This is the authoritative word of God. So you need to know what this says, and you need to trust it. You need to know where you're standing. Trust what this teaches. Everything else is shifting sand. Everything else changes. Every other opinion, every other teaching, it changes every five minutes. This doesn't change. This is the authoritative word of God. So we need to know what it says. And yes, I know that some of this is really difficult to understand, that's why we have very clever people 
far cleverer than I am, who kind of can look at it and, and explain kind of what it means and explain the words and explain the bits that are difficult. But we, so I know it's difficult to understand. I know that sometimes this jars with us because it's so countercultural, or or we read something in it, particularly in the Old Testament, that is just a bit troubling. We like I don't really, I'm not sure how I feel about this thing I've just read. It kind of it disturbs me a bit inside. It it, it, it troubles me. This does offend us sometimes, this word. And yes, it needs to be wisely and faithfully interpreted for the world that we live in. How do you teach this in the world that we live in? But this is the authoritative word of God. This is the solid ground on which we are to stand firm. This is our foundation. And we take our feet off this at our peril. And we know there are many pressures to do so. There are many pressures to deviate from the word of God or just try and gloss over bits or ignore bits because they're just too uncomfortable in today's world. The question is, do you know where you stand? Do you have a confidence in where you stand? Do you know what you believe? Do you know the core things of your belief, of your faith? Do you know the truth? Or are you swayed by every trend, every cultural trend that happens to come along at different times? Or are you swayed by an overwhelming desire to be seen as nice and to fit in with people, to be liked by people? You know, because we all remember when Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people really like you because of me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. He didn't say that, did he? He said, people are going to hate you because of me. You're going to be persecuted because of me. That's what he said. But we do have, every human being has a desire to be liked to, to a greater or lesser extent, a desire to fit in. It's just natural to us. And so what can happen is you end up compromising with the truth or just glossing over bits of this truth because they're difficult. Some of the truths in here are difficult and they're offensive to our society, but they are God's truth. That's the point. This is God's truth and he is good. We've got to remember that. We so easily forget this. This is God's word. This is God's truth and he is good. He's the creator who knows what is best for his creation. He knows what is best for human flourishing. And if you have any doubts about God's goodness, well, he's blown those doubts apart at the cross. You just look at the cross. Who does that if they're not good? Who does that if they're not loving? We can have no doubt about the goodness of God. And that's the fundamental, is that God is good. He is for us. He is for his creation. He is the creator. So we can trust him and we can trust this. We can trust his word, even when it's difficult. And so when when that clash happens within me, when I feel a sense of uneasiness, in me because there's something in here that is really difficult to apply into our modern world I'm going to go with this rather than my own understanding because he's God and I'm not (laughs) I'm going to assume the problem is with my understanding and not with his even when it's difficult because he's God and he is good you know and if he if he is God he knows a heck of a lot more about everything than I do he knows I don't So I'm going to trust him. His wisdom, his knowledge far outweigh the fleeting and temporary ideas of our day that masquerade as wisdom and are actually foolishness and change every 10 years. 10 years' time, the things that people are saying today will be different. This doesn't change. So the the, the question is, you need to be rooted in this. You need to be sure of where you stand. You need to be grounded in the word of God so that you're not easily shaken and wavering around all over the place like a, like a reed in the wind with every popular opinion and, and everything that comes along. You need to be rooted and grounded in this word. Because if you're not clear about what you believe, 
or, or you don't really know where you're standing or what you're standing on, well, do you really stand for anything? And how can you stand? How can you stand? And really, that is the huge concern that many people have at the moment for the Church of England. You know, I, I'm not here to stand in judgment on the Church of England, by the way. You know, there are other people far better qualified than me to do that. And I love the Church of England. It's just be really clear I've got lots of really good friends in Anglican churches the Church of England's played a huge massively influential part in my life and and in the life of this nation and it continues to do so right so it is not about bashing the Church of England or trying to suggest we're better or anything like that please understand that but the huge concern for lots of people within the Church of England and outside the Church of England at the moment is that it seems to be departing from centuries held orthodox doctrine on marriage and sexuality without any compelling theological rationale. And that's pretty serious. I understand it's a complicated debate. I understand there are sides and there are arguments. and I understand that. It's not, a, it's not a straightforward thing. Well, it is in one sense, but it's not in others. I understand that. But they seem to be shifting without any compelling theological rationale. I think that's pretty serious. I would completely agree it's right to reflect on how we communicate this truth. Because this can be communicated harshly. It can be communicated without any love. And it has been. So it's right to reflect on how we communicate the truth of God into today's world. It's right to reflect and repent where necessary. Where hurt has been caused by unbiblical and unloving behaviour from Christians. That happens plenty. So it's right to think about that, reflect on that, but don't change your theology and your beliefs and your doctrine to fit in with the world. Don't let other people's pain and hurt be the driver for changing what you believe. That is building on sand. That's the definition of building on shifting sands. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospels, there's an account where the rich, a rich young ruler or a rich young man comes to see Jesus, and it's repeated in at least three or maybe four, I can't remember, of the Gospels. In Mark's account of this um, episode. So that a rich man comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus talks to him about the law. And he says, well, I've kept all that law since I was a boy. And in, so in other words, he's saying, yeah, what else do I have to do? And um, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Right, that's really important. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. And at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus loves this man, that's absolutely clear, it's beyond doubt. Jesus loves the man, and his word to this man is, if you want to follow me, you've got to do this. He's not telling all of us to sell everything we have and give away. He knows the idol that's in this man's heart. He also knows the idol that's in your heart and my heart, and he'll challenge us on those as well. But he knows what it is for this man. So he tells him, if you want to follow me, this is what you've got to do. And it says the man goes away sad. It makes him sad. And he goes away sad. And notice Jesus doesn't do anything to mitigate the sadness. Jesus doesn't run after him and say, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry I upset you. I'm so sorry I offended you. I, I didn't really mean what I said. It was kind of, listen, let me just... He doesn't do any of that, does he? Because it's about following him, ultimately. You know, this, this word is offensive to the world. It is. It will upset people. But my conviction and our conviction as Christians is that what this word teaches in its entirety, everything that this word teaches is good news 
for all people because it's God's word. And he, he, he loves all people. He is the creator. It's good news for all people. And therefore, my conviction is that what this word teaches about marriage between a man and a woman and the cosmic significance of what marriage represents, you know, Christ and the church, my conviction is that this is, that teaching is good news for all people, whether you're gay or straight. It's good news for you because it's God's word and God loves all people. And actually, the central issue here isn't even whether you are gay or straight. That's not the central issue. This is something the enemy is very good at. He's very good at just distracting and diverting your attention to make something which isn't the main thing into the main thing. And it's not that that isn't important, but it's not the main thing. The central issue actually isn't even whether you're gay or straight. The central issue is, are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow him whatever the cost for you? Whatever the cost for you. And that is the same for every single one of us. Whatever your opinions, whatever your sexuality, whatever, it's the same deal for every single one of us. Are you going to follow Christ whatever the cost? That's the invitation of Jesus. Everybody's welcome here. Everybody's welcome here at church. I'm not going to turn someone away because of who you're attracted to. That would be ridiculous. But if you're going to respond to the gospel and you're going to repent, turn your life from facing away from God to facing towards God and doing what he says, and you're going to submit your life to him, well, then it's all in for all of us. It's all in. The command is to follow him and to follow his word. And we're in this context of Ephesians 6, where it's all about the context of soldiers and battle and armies. Well, key to that context, if you're a soldier, is you do what your commanding officer says without question. Otherwise, you're lost. As a soldier, you follow orders. You follow the, the directors of your commanding officer without question. That's part of it. And Jesus says very clearly, if you're going to be my disciple, you deny yourself. You pick up your cross and you follow me. What does that mean, deny yourself? Well, it will mean something different for, lots of, for all of us. But there is a cost for everybody in following Jesus. But it's the only path worth following. It's about following Jesus. This isn't a talk about marriage and sexuality. Okay, but the point really is this. The point is you've got to know where you stand. You've got to be clear on the ground that you're standing on. Clear on your position on your convictions. It's like when uh, back in the 16th century in the Reformation, Martin Luther in Germany, he was getting all sorts of backlash for his teaching about the gospel, and he made this very famous statement. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. In other words, this is my conviction. I can't depart from that because this is what I believe, absolutely believe to be true. Here I stand, I can do no other. Do what you will to me, but I'm not changing what I think here. He knew where he stood. If you start to compromise on the word of God, then you take your feet off solid ground and you put your feet onto shifting sands. You will slip, you will fall, you'll be easy prey for the enemy. And God is looking for people who will stand. So are you standing? And are you standing on solid ground? Or do you have one foot planted in the world, you know, just in case or whatever? You know, you can't serve two masters. You will get defeated, you'll be miserable. And I know, because I've tried it. It's not a good place to be. So make sure you're standing on the solid ground of the truth of God's word, unashamedly, and make sure you're wearing your shoes. Get your shoes on. The readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So what's that about? What does that mean? That readiness. The readiness is like an attitude of heart. 
It's a, it's a, a characteristic, a quality of heart. It's a state of preparation, of being equipped and prepared and ready for whatever comes along in your life. Whatever life throws at you, you're ready. You have this readiness, this attitude, this heart attitude of readiness. And that readiness includes those three qualities I mentioned just before about the shoes, the Roman soldier shoes. So three qualities. So the readiness includes that kind of sense of assurance and sure-footedness. Remember the hobnails in the boots. Assurance, sure-footedness, firmness, steadfastness. I know who I am and I know where I stand. The readiness includes that toughness, the, the, the resilience. Remember the sole of the shoe. A toughness and a resilience that can take the spikes and the problems of life that come along without being immobilized, without being taken out of the battle, without being shaken, without being overwhelmed. And it's a readiness that includes that lightness and that mobility, a a kind of a nimbleness that can respond really quickly to the changing circumstances of life and to enemy attacks that could come from any angle. You're watchful, you're alert, you're able to move, and you're, you're nimble. There's a, a lightness of spirit that you have. There's a buoyancy of spirit, a joy, a spiritual joy that transcends circumstances. That's the readiness. The point being that these are qualities that we can't muster up ourselves. We can't make ourselves joyful. We can't make, ourselves, we can't, you know, we can't make this armor for ourselves. We can't make the breastplate for ourselves. The qualities that come from the gospel of peace not from ourselves, and recognizing that gospel, grasping it, living in it, experiencing it, remembering its truth, and enjoying the peace that comes from the gospel. And that's talking primarily about peace with God. So when we think of peace, we tend to think of a kind of a subjective peace, you know, of peace within ourselves or peace with others, peace between nations. And that's something the human race has been searching for forever, peace, and never actually seem to find the answer. The reason is because the answer is that that is a peace, that subjective peace is a peace that can only come from God, but only on the basis that first you have peace with God. It's an objective peace, an unchanging, solid peace that can't be changed with God. So Romans 5.1 says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Now, why do we need peace with God? Why is that important? Well, because the natural state of the human heart is enmity towards God. It's hostility towards God. Ever since the fall, ever since sin came into the world, the attitude, the natural state of our heart is hostility towards God. You may not have felt particularly hostile towards God. You might have just been a bit, meh, doesn't really make any difference to my life. You may not have felt hostile. Some people are very hostile. But actually just the way you lived your life, independently of God, it was saying to God, I don't need you, I'll do things my way. Thank you very much. That may be conscious, that may be subconscious, but it's the attitude of our heart. It's hostility towards God. The problem is we are created to know him. The way we are designed, you know, it's in our DNA, it's in our blueprint, is that we are to enjoy being with God. We're to enjoy communion with God. That's how we're designed. So we've got this huge clash, this huge Mismatch. We're designed for this, but we're hostile to it. So the most fundamental thing every human being needs is reconciliation with God. The most fundamental thing every human needs is peace with God, and that only comes through the gospel. It only comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. And whether you're somebody who has faith or has no faith, every human being is aware that there's something missing. Everyone knows that there's something you're longing for. There's something you're reaching for, a happiness, whatever it is, something you're grasping for. There's a meaning in life that is there, but you can't quite grab hold of it. We're searching 
for it. And I remember when I was when I was born again, when I became a Christian when I was 17, and it was it was it was after a really powerful encounter with God, and that encounter meant, meant I saw I saw kind of the depth of my own sin, and at the same time experienced the most incredible love of God, you know. And it was just that question in my mind of how could you love this? How could you love someone like me? And what I encountered in that moment and what I experienced was peace. Peace with God. I couldn't have articulated it like that at the time. I didn't know the language of reconciliation and peace with God and anything like that. But all I can say is in that moment, I knew for the first time in my life, everything was right. Everything was at peace. And it's not that I had a particularly troubled life. I had quite a good life. But I knew everything was right. Everything was settled. I was filled with peace, filled with a deep joy. I had a lightness about me. And why? It's because my fundamental position had changed. I now had peace with God, whereas before I'd been hostile to God. And that changed. Now, of course, over the years, that experience of peace, knowing that peace, it kind of ebbs and flows. It gets disrupted by worries and anxieties that come in by sin and by the spiritual battle we don't always feel that sense of peace and I have to admit I'd be the first to admit over the last few months I haven't felt a lot of that peace a lot of that lightness at all times I felt quite a lot of heaviness at times but that is when I have to keep reminding myself again and again and again of what is really true that if you are in Christ you have peace with God you have the thing that you were looking for you have the thing that every human being is looking for you've got it so why go looking anywhere else for it why go, why go looking in other, in other sources for happiness or satisfaction or anything? Why follow the voice of the enemy and take your eyes off Christ? But we do. Because when we really grasp the gospel, when we really see that we have peace with God, and you realize what that means, it means that every debt has been paid completely. It means that every sin, past, present, future, has been totally forgiven, completely paid off. The righteousness of Christ has been reckoned to you, been given to you. You start to see things differently. You start to approach life with gratitude because of all the things that you've been given undeservedly. You start to see the circumstances of life very, very differently. You start to see the real problem is not why so many bad things happen to us. The real problem is why do so many good things happen to us? Because you realize God owes me nothing. He owes me nothing. The problem was my hostility to him and not the other way around. So to really grasp that and understand the gospel of peace and the benefits of the gospel and to live in it, to use that gospel, means that the readiness that we need comes. The readiness that we need comes into our lives. The assurance of I know I belong to him. I know where I stand. The toughness, the resilience of being able to take the spikes of life without being immobilized because everything I have is a gift what I do have is a gift and God is with me he's my protector and that lightness of spirit and joy in all circumstances that comes from that that's the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and if we forget that as Christians which we do very often what will happen is unknowingly we switch back into an attitude of hostility towards God not positionally, our position hasn't changed. We still have peace with God, objectively. But our attitude changes. We start to, to, to believe wrong things about God and about ourselves. That can show itself in lots of ways, but here's a couple of them. One would be self-reliance and pride. A life of self-reliance, because every human being wants to be in charge and in control of their own life. That was the first sin, that was the problem in the beginning. To believe the lie that God can't really be trusted. 
you know, to believe the lie that, look, if you really put your trust in him, if you really submit your life to him and follow him, you're going to miss out on something that you probably should have. And so we take control. We try to be in control of our lives and be self-reliant and do things in our own strength until you realize you can't because you've run aground. You know it's an illusion that you have control over your life. You have very little control over your life. It's a complete illusion. We all know full well that life can be changed dramatically in an instant by something happening completely out of our control. You don't have control over your lives. You don't have that self-determination. But the gospel is wonderful because the gospel is that if you put your trust in Christ, if you're in him, you are in the hands of the most trustworthy, the most loving, and the most powerful person in the universe. And you can rest in that. Why would I want to take control of my own life? I just mess it up. He doesn't. Why would I want to take control of my own life? Knowing that and trusting that brings the assurance, the confidence, the resilience, the joy that we need. Or the hostility might show itself in how you see God, you know, maybe as some harsh taskmaster and your life is spent resentfully trying to please him all the time, but you just don't feel like you're getting anything back or you're, or you're, you know, you're just trying to please this insatiable and demanding God and, and you're not sure if you're doing enough or maybe God's angry with me because this bad thing happened to me. Maybe that's because God's angry with me because I didn't please him enough and he's not doing right by me and that just leads to bitterness and, and resentment and uncertainty. There is no assurance in that. There's no resilience in that and there's certainly no joy in seeing God like that but it's not the truth that's not the gospel when you grasp the gospel of peace and you grasp the truth I know I am righteous in Christ I know it I know I'm forgiven totally I know I have peace with God I know I'm right with him when you see that you deserve nothing but you get everything you get this readiness that comes in your life assurance resilience joy the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace you already have everything you need you have everything you need it gives you the ability to to stand firm and keep your footing when others slip it gives you the ability to keep moving forward when others are weighed down and immobilized and taken out of the battle it means you can agree with the apostle paul who said in 2 corinthians 4 that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And you might think, well, don't call my troubles light and momentary. You don't know what I've been through. Well, listen, when Paul talks about light and momentary troubles, Paul has been flogged and beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been put in prison with a death sentence hanging over his head. That's his light and momentary troubles. What are yours? The point being that all of it is far outweighed by the glory that, that awaits him. That's his confidence. And it's the same for you and me. It's not to minimize the troubles we go through, but the fact is that whatever we have been through and will go through in our lives is infinitely outweighed by the eternal glory that awaits us if we are in Christ. The power of sin, the power of pride, and all of that is far outweighed by the glory of what Jesus did on the cross. You know, glory, the word glory itself means weighty. And the glory of God is far weightier than any trouble you could have. It's far weightier than anything else in this world. And when the glory of God hits the earth, it makes the earth shake. It, 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 it causes tremors. It causes things to happen. The glory of God. That was Paul's confidence and it should be our confidence too. That is the assurance and the resilience and the joy. The readiness for every circumstance of life that comes from the gospel of peace. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Keep your eyes on the cross. 
all that was achieved for you there. Make sure you're standing on solid ground of the truth of God's word and make sure that you are wearing your shoes, the God-given shoes, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Amen? Amen. Amen.